I'm going to start this morning by reading from Job chapter 3, starting in verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves. With princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together, they hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me. And what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. We just read some of the most heart-wrenching words that you will find anywhere in the Bible. Those are the words of Job, a man more righteous than anyone in his day and age. He says those words after suffering unfathomably devastating loss. In an incredibly short period of time, Job experiences more extreme and sudden trauma than most of us will ever face throughout our entire lives. He lost everything. His servants, his livestock, his children, his home, and his reputation. Things are so bad that Job's own wife urges him to curse God and die. Curse God and die. Little does Job know, but that's the very thing that Satan hopes he'll do. Now, we open with this passage because Job's words drip with what we might refer to as anxiety and depression. Job is not just experiencing a momentary passing feeling of sadness or worry. Job wishes he were dead. Better yet, he wishes that he had never lived at all. For Job, there is no reason to rejoice in this life. There's nothing to hope for, no light at the end of the tunnel. 
All is worry, dread, and fear in Job chapter 3. Now, while most of us may never experience that same level of trauma, anxiety and depression are still very real challenges that people like us face. We may have had days or weeks or months or maybe even years where we could somewhat relate with Job. Again, we're not talking about occasionally feeling a little bit nervous or having a brief bout with the blues. We're talking about diagnosable mental health disorders. And that's what today's sermon pulled from the grab bag of topics that it was suggested we talk about. Well, that's what today's sermon is all about. And while there are plenty of mental health issues worthy of attention and discussion, I want to focus most of our time today on anxiety and depression, two of the most common mental health issues that we face. Other mental health issues are, of course, just as serious, and I don't mean to dismiss them or trivialize them at all, but these two are by far the most common. Take a look at a few of the numbers. According to recent studies, nearly one in five Americans, 18 and older, will experience a diagnosable mental health disorder in a given year. Nearly half will experience a mental health disorder at some point in their lifetime. Some form of anxiety disorder affects roughly 18% of American adults. That's a lot of people. And 800,000 people die of suicide each year, many directly related to depression. Now, while I may know more about mental health today than I did a week ago in preparing for the sermon, I don't claim to be an expert on this topic. In fact, you may have more knowledge and you may have more experience with this than I do. However, given the numbers that we just read, it's safe to say that it's worth the church's time to think and talk about this together. Specifically, how should we as believers think about mental health? How should the church address it, both theologically, what we believe, what we teach, but then also pastorally, how we treat people dealing with this? And then maybe most of all, does the gospel offer any hope? Does it offer any encouragement for God's people affected by mental health disorders? With that, open up to Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. We're not going to read that passage right away, but keep your finger there. Keep your Bibles open there. And of course, if you don't have a Bible, use one of ours. If you don't own a Bible, take one of them home. But before we read, let's pray together as a church family. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Father, thank you that these people have gathered in this room to worship you. And that I have the privilege of worshiping you with them. And as we've mentioned many times on Sunday morning, we all come from different places. We all bring different baggage and stories and experiences and hardships and victories and losses with us. And some of us are worshiping here, feeling like we're on top of the world. Everything in our lives is falling into place. Everything is perfect. And then others of us might feel as though everything is falling apart, like nothing is going right. And yet we're all in the same room, we're singing the same songs, and we're reading the same scriptures. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us the things that we need this morning. If we need encouragement, give us that. If we need 
Conviction, give us that. If we need challenge, give us that as well. Father, we trust that you are faithful to do that. We trust that your word doesn't come back void when it's preached. And so, Father, I pray that your word and your spirit would be active this morning. Father, again, we give you all the glory. We give you all the praise, whether we're on top of the world or whether we're at rock bottom. We love you. We honor you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin by reading in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. We read there. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Last week we talked about a theology of the body. And we closed that sermon with the verses that we read just now in Romans 12. Last week we focused more on verse 1. The part where Paul talks about offering up our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. But verse 2 may be particularly relevant for our sermon today. That's where Paul uses that phrase... The renewal of your minds. The renewal of your minds. Now, of course, in context, Paul is referring to sanctification. That our minds would be transformed and renewed and shaped by the word of God. Shaped to conform to the will of God. Shaped so that we can recognize the will of God when we see it and reject what isn't the will of God. But again, I still think that phrase can be helpful as we talk about mental health this morning. Now, when we talked last week about our theology of the body, we mentioned that our physical world and our physical bodies are good creations of God. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2. However, we Christians also believe that our world and our bodies are subject to the fall, the consequences of Adam and Eve unleashing sin into the world. Through the fall, our world is subject to all kinds of destruction, decay, and disaster. In addition, our bodies are subject to weakness and illness, pain, aging, and ultimately death. Our world and our bodies are both in desperate need of rescue, redemption, reunion with God. And this only comes through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Well, the same thing is true of our minds. Our brains are part of our bodies, and they too are subject to the fall. Our minds can hurt, suffer, and experience trauma and disease, just like our arms, our legs, our hearts, and our lungs can. Of course, it may be more visible and may be more obvious in our physical bodies, but the suffering can be just as real, just as severe, and even debilitating in our minds. The point is that our minds, like our bodies, are subject to the sufferings of our fallen world. As Paul says, our minds need to be renewed. They need to be rescued and redeemed and reunited to God through Jesus Christ, just like the rest of creation. Now, I make this point to argue that Christians, of all people, should affirm the legitimacy of mental health disorders. In a fallen world, anxiety and depression are facts of life. 
And the person suffering from them is not a freak deserving shame and isolation. They're not just a snowflake who needs to pick themselves up by the bootstraps and toughen up. They're not someone who should be written off as just simply not having enough faith. Christians should recognize the reality of diagnosable mental health disorders because we live in a fallen world. You can argue that we, of all people, should be the least surprised by it and maybe even the least skeptical of it. Speaking of the Bible, let's consider some of the examples in Scripture that might be relevant to this talk of anxiety and depression. Is there any biblical precedent, any biblical guidance here? We've already talked about Job, the man whose words would greatly concern any of us if we heard someone utter them today. You read Job chapter 3. Imagine if a friend or a family member came up to you and was talking like Job does in Job chapter 3. You'd probably be worried. You'd probably tell them they need to get some help. Zach read Psalm 42. Rick mentioned Psalm 42 earlier in the service. That's when David repeatedly asks multiple times in the same psalm, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you cast down, O my soul? As you read Psalm 42, you can picture David with his head in his hands, giving up almost, reminding himself over and over again, telling himself to hope in God, hope in God, hope in God, I will again praise him. There's Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, the prophet facing down Israel's wicked king Ahab. Just one chapter earlier, Elijah witnessed God's power firsthand in a spectacular way. And yet here he anxiously asks God to take away his life. There's Jeremiah, the prophet subjected by God to significant hardship, carrying a message of judgment. Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet. And if you ever want to see why, you can read the book. There's Paul grieving and complaining and mourning and venting about the thorn in his side in 2 Corinthians. In Philippians 1, Paul admits that if he had it his way, he would just hurry up and die. That way he could finally be with Christ. And then last but not least, there's Lamentations, an entire book of the Bible dedicated to grief and sorrow resulting from traumatic loss. Now, of course, we can't say with confidence that any of these people, any of these biblical figures had a diagnosable case of anxiety or depression. But if nothing else, if you've experienced a sense of anxiety and depression far worse than just a passing moment of worry or sadness. Well, if nothing else, you can know that you are not the first. You may have heard the name Charles Spurgeon before. He's considered to be one of the greatest preachers who ever lived. You can go to a library or a bookstore today and find a book of his sermons. I have one on my bookshelf, and you could borrow it if you wanted to. In the mid-1800s, Spurgeon was a young, up-and-coming preacher in London. But one day, while he was standing in his church, preaching to a massive crowd, a prankster ran into the sanctuary and yelled, Fire! As loud as he could. People thought the church was burning down, and they panicked. The crowd rushed to the doors all at the same time, trying to escape what they thought was a burning building. 
And in the end, seven people were trampled and killed. Twenty-eight people were seriously injured. And from that point forward, for the rest of his life, Charles Spurgeon, the larger-than-life preacher that everyone admires so much, a man of God if there ever was one, for the rest of his life, he suffered from anxiety and depression. He was traumatized by that horrific tragedy in his church, and he never truly got over it. On top of that, he suffered from physical illnesses that didn't make his mental health any better. At one point later in his preaching career, he was getting ready to preach to another large crowd in a similar building, and he had a flashback of sorts to that tragedy. Today we might call it a panic attack or an anxiety attack. He almost couldn't physically walk up to the pulpit to preach. He almost couldn't deliver his sermon. At another point down the road, Spurgeon's depression was so severe that he was put on suicide watch for several weeks. And listen to some of the things that Spurgeon has to say about anxiety and depression. Some of his quotes. He says, I am, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. He goes on. We very speedily care for bodily diseases. They are too painful to let us slumber in silence, and they soon urge us to seek a doctor or a surgeon for our healing. Oh, if we were as much alive to the more serious wounds of our inner man. Another quote, Spurgeon says, Ah, says one, I used to laugh at Mrs. So-and-so for being so nervous, but now that I feel the torture myself... I am sorry that I was ever hard on her. Ah, says another, I used to think of such and such a person that he must be a fool to always be in so gloomy a state of mind. But now I cannot help sinking into the same desponding frames. And I would pray to God that I had been more kind to that man. Yes, we should feel more for the prisoner if we knew more about the prison. And then one more quote. This is my favorite. Some of you may be in great distress of mind, a distress out of which no fellow creature can deliver you. You are poor, nervous people at whom others often laugh. I can assure you that God will not laugh at you. He knows all about that sad complaint of yours. So I urge you to go to him, for the experience of many has taught us that the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. If you suffer from anxiety or depression, you are not alone. Believers before you have suffered as well. You are not a burden. You are not a disgrace. You are not a bad example. You are not a lost cause. God will not dismiss you. And God will not laugh at you. Now, of course, we should discuss the more practical, the more pastoral side of mental health. What should believers do if we suffer from these kinds of disorders? And how can we help other believers who do? And what resources can the church offer? Well, a few things I would want you to know. Number one, you should know that this is a safe place to talk about mental health. No one's going to shun you. No one's going to disown you. In fact, transparency with your fellow believers may be of more help than you might expect. There was a study done several years ago that examined 1,000 patients over a six-month period, 
And the study found that religious depression patients recovered from bouts of depression faster than those who were non-religious. One person involved in the study said this. A person must be engaged in a religious community to see these effects. If they are doing that, they have a greater than 50% increase in speed of depression recovery. Now, of course, we're not saying that if you go to church, then everything will get better. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that being involved in a church family, a church family that loves you, cares for you, prays for you, encourages you, it might be more help than you would think. On top of that, churches should be willing to offer helpful counsel. You know, I think it's sad that many pastors and many churches have completely abandoned the calling to offer counseling. Too many church leaders would rather not be bothered by a congregant looking for counseling, and so they just pawn them off on someone else. They outsource them to the professional without thinking twice. Now, of course, churches and pastors should recognize their limitations. There are times when the average church leader isn't equipped and isn't qualified to offer counseling. And when that time comes, churches shouldn't hesitate to help a congregant find the professional help they need that we can't offer. But we also shouldn't completely neglect the good pastoral work of counseling. Another thing is that we should all be willing to listen. One of the many lessons of the book of Job is not to be like Job's three friends. Job's three friends try to fix Job. They falsely accuse him of all kinds of evil. They offer shallow and insufficient answers about his suffering and why he feels the way he does. Everything that's wrong with him. But sometimes the best thing that we can do for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering, whether it be from mental health disorders or any other source of suffering, one of the best things we can do is to sit down, shut up, and listen. Sit down and grieve with them, weep with them, suffer with them and care for them and love them, perhaps without even saying a word. We should also be willing to seek help outside of the church. You know, churches haven't always handled these issues very well. We've sometimes naively told people that all they have to do is pray more, or read their Bibles more, and then poof, their anxiety and their depression will disappear. They'll feel better. We've told them that if they're really a Christian, then they should put on a smile. Don't worry. Be happy. Well, sometimes it's not quite that easy. There are times when Christians should seek the help, not just of a pastor, not just a counselor, not just a trusted brother or sister in Christ, but a doctor. There are cases where medical treatment or prescription drugs can and do help. And churches and Christians shouldn't discourage this, shouldn't look down on it, shouldn't imply that those people are just not spiritual enough to fix themselves. And then finally, one thing to think about is to take care of yourself. You know, there is all kinds of research out there about how we can better care for ourselves, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally as well. Charles Spurgeon had to be intentional about rest or else he would simply fall apart, break down, couldn't do his ministry anymore. And his congregation understood that. 
They made reasonable accommodations for him. That way he could get the health and the healing that he needed in order to fulfill his calling. We live in a day and age where everything goes a million miles a minute. An age of distraction, stress, and pressure. So care for your mind the same way you would care for your body. If there are unnecessary things in your life that cause undue stress, undue pressure, undue sorrow, consider getting rid of them. Take a break from them. That way you can better serve yourself, better serve your neighbor, better serve your family, better serve your church, and better serve your God. Take care of yourself. Now, of course, we haven't read Matthew 26 yet. It's been sitting open for the entire sermon. But let's look at Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. We read there. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus knows what it's like to feel anxious and depressed. He experienced that in the Garden of Gethsemane as he stared down a cross with his name on it. Christ suffered too. Your Lord and your Savior suffered too. He is caring and gentle with weak people like us. As the author of Hebrews says, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Richard Sibbs, a Puritan pastor who is sometimes referred to as the sweet dropper or the heavenly Dr. Sibbs, he got those names because his sermons, his teaching brought so much encouragement. And so much hope to people who were suffering. Sib says this. Let not therefore our infirmities discourage us. There is never a holy sigh. A tear we shed. Which is lost. He goes on and says. We are weak. But we are his. We are deformed. But yet carry his image upon us. Nowhere are we promised. That our physical or mental sufferings will be fully healed in this life. And in fact, it's naive to believe that just because we're Christians, all of our ailments will be cured, that we'll never suffer and that we'll always be happy, always be physically and mentally healthy. But if nothing else, we can say with confidence that Christ, our master and savior, he suffered too. And we know that because of his suffering. Because of his death, because of his resurrection, because he took that cup that he talked about in Gethsemane. We know that we will not suffer forever. As we close, I'd like to read Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Paul says there, 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In that same chapter, Paul says that the Holy Spirit helps us when our groanings, our sufferings are too deep for words. When life is so hard that we don't even know what to say when we pray. Those are the moments when we ask ourselves, like David did in Psalm 42. Why are you so cast down, O my soul? Why are you so cast down, O my soul? When those times come, we remind ourselves that God is for us. As Paul says in Romans 8, we remind ourselves every day for the rest of our lives, if we have to, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Anxiety can't. Depression can't. Our traumas, our baggage, our chemical imbalances, our physical ailments and our mental ailments. None of them can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is hope for us. There is encouragement for us. The sufferings of this life, both physical and mental, may never go away in this life. But they do not have the final say. And that's why we can say, along with David, through all the seasons of our lives, hope in God, hope in God, hope in God, for I will again praise him. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Again, we are, we are weak people. We are people who fall asleep in the garden, like Peter did. We are people with sufferings and hardships and pains and aches and illnesses and imperfections. And yet, Father, you are good to us, you are gracious to us, you are kind to us, even though we are sinners and even though we don't deserve it. Father, I pray that those of us who suffer from anxiety and depression, I pray that we would remind ourselves over and over again, like David did, to hope in God. I pray that we would be a good church to care for and love and shepherd and pastor people who are suffering, not just physically, but mentally as well. And Father, I pray that every single one of us 
through the ups and downs of this life, whether it's just a temporary season of anxiety or depression or loss or trauma, or whether it's a much, much deeper time of of loss and trauma. I pray that you would direct our eyes towards you. Father, guide us to the help that we need, wherever it might come from. And Father, I pray that you would heal us, even if a cure doesn't come in this life. Father, help us look forward to the next life, that we can hope in you, hope in you, hope in you, no matter our circumstances here. We love you. We honor you. We thank you for Christ who suffers with us, who died for us and rose and will return. We ask this all in his name. Amen.